Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, church. Summon our Bibles to Mark chapter 9. We'll begin in verse 33 here in just a moment. And as you give your gifts and your sacrifices uh, for ministry, uh, I thank you. And on behalf of the church leadership, as Scott mentioned, uh, I'd like to update you uh, on the generation campaign. If you were not with us this last fall, we went through a fall where we challenged this church to sacrifice financially to accomplish four initiatives. At the end of that sacrifice, and it was a sacrifice, we received a great response to it. We whittled those four initiatives down to three, and I want to keep you updated uh, on those. As uh, the campaign started in January, we're six months into it, and we want to give you an update uh, on where we are. First of all, I'd like to begin by saying thank you to each and every person who's increased their giving, because we're seeing it, and we're grateful for it. And we appreciate it. We encourage you this summer as you're in and out on vacation and traveling that you continue to remember uh, your sacrifices. The, the finances we're receiving are allowing us to, to go forward on the initiatives uh, and we're uh, preparing to do that. And we want to say thank you to each person uh, who's made a sacrifice for these. Uh, if you weren't here, I want to tell you what they were, what we uh, landed on. After the money came in, uh, there were three initiatives we landed on that we wanted to proceed with. The first is to remodel and repurpose our children's ministry area, which if you walk out of this building that direction and you take a right, you'll go down a long corridor, and that's being remodeled and has been since the first of the year. And we're excited about that. We wanted to raise $1 million to help partners of ours in uh, Japan, Mustard Seed Christian Network, We wanted to help them uh, to do the work of planting churches and building the infrastructure to plant more churches in one of the largest uh, unchurched people groups in the world. And thirdly, we wanted to create a Thursday night worship element. And uh, let me give you the update on each one of those. The children's space is coming along amazingly. And uh, we're anticipating sometime in August, uh, early September, to be able to open that area for our teachers. Uh, New space, new classrooms, remodeled, better use of the space for the size of our children's ministry. We're very excited what this is going to do for our kids and for our parents and for all of you who sacrificed for that. Thank you. Uh, It's coming to fruition, and we're very excited to see that happening. Uh, We wanted to give $1 million to Mustard Seed Christian uh, Fellowship, and the reason we wanted to do that for the network Uh, was we wanted to be one of the lead gifts uh, in in what they needed to do going forward planting churches in the large metropolitan areas. Now, after the campaign came in and the numbers came in, we concluded that based on what was given and what we'd committed to, we were able to give, uh, we're anticipating being able to give $650,000 of that. Yes, we wanted to give a million. We're going to be able to give $650,000. We talked to Jay Greer and his people over there, and they decided they would accept that much, even though it wasn't a million, if you know what I mean. They were okay with it. They thought, well, whatever. No, they were, they were like, are you kidding? Thank you. But here's what I want to challenge our church with. I, I think we can give a million dollars. And I think if we pray and seek and sacrifice continually, that God's going to allow us to meet that number we talked about. And at the end of two years, we may not be able to, but we're going to try to. And we hope that you'll uh, pray about that and see what God might do uh, as we believe the Japanese people are in the heart of God and they need churches preaching them the gospel. Uh, The third thing we went after was this Thursday night worship element. And if you weren't here, let me explain what we're after. We want to go after unsaved people, people that don't know the love of Jesus Christ for themselves. We want to do that for people, especially who cannot come to church on weekends. 
There's a large population base that cannot attend a church on a Sunday morning because they work or they need to work on weekends. They have restaurant jobs or hospital rotations and so many other uh, opportunities for them that we want to create an environment on Thursday night. I was involved in one of these in central Michigan before we moved here. Uh, I know its effectiveness. I really believe it could be something that could be powerful. Reaching out, other churches even in the area are doing it and we're excited about what might happen. Now, it's going to take us more time. Some of you have been asking, well, we haven't heard anything. And let me tell you that silence doesn't mean there hasn't been effort. We've been working since January, putting together the substructures to be able to do this. To be able to do a Thursday night, that's not just another worship service. You could pull one of those off in no time. But we need something different. We're trying to create a discipleship environment where people are being discipled. They're not just coming to church. But they're given an opportunity to go deeper in their walk. We're going to do that here on Sunday mornings. We're going to do that on Thursday. And we're building the substructure to do this. There are two guys that are helping me as I architect kind of this deal. It's Jake Harp and Adam Everett from our staff have moved into these responsibilities to help get this going. We're going to need hundreds of volunteers on Thursday nights. We just can't make that happen in a weekend. So we're going to be having some open forums where we're going to be inviting those of you that are interested in learning more about Thursday nights in July and August. We're going to have some of these open forums for you to come because we're going to be asking some of you to give up your seats on Sunday mornings and make Thursday night your worship night where you can serve and help disciple people that are coming to know Christ. And you may have thought, oh, that's not going to be me. Well, ask God if it's going to be you because he may say yes. We're going to need hundreds to commit to this. And so it's going to take us some time to build it, and we'll be announcing more as we get closer and closer. We really want to do this well, and we want, to, we want to do it for the purpose of seeing people come to know Jesus Christ, not only just in being saved, but becoming disciples of his. Now, Adam and Jake are both going to be out in the foyer with me after this service. If you have any questions, feel free to come up and ask directly. We'll answer any question we can answer. We won't be evasive. But we wanted to update you on the three initiatives we're after. We want to say thank you. And we'll keep you updated as we get closer and closer to some of these things launching. And if you have any questions, feel free to do that. On to the sermon. Are you ready? That was a commercial. You thought, oh my goodness. Trust me. It's a short sermon. Here we go. I'd like to remind you where we've been, especially those of you who have missed a few weeks because of travel and holidays and so forth. We went to the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus where the glory of God was displayed through him. It just wasn't something that landed on him like it did Moses on the Mount Sinai. This was something that the glory of God was shown in Christ, that he was the new temple. He was the place where God interacts on earth with man. And that glory was shown. And they came off the mountain the next week. Excuse me. And as they came off the mountain, they came down. And the disciples that were down at the bottom of the mountain were trying to heal a demon-possessed boy, and they couldn't do it. And Jesus taught them that it was the humility of prayer that they were missing. They had the power given to them, but they, they weren't humble and seeking in prayer for God to empower them to do this particular thing. And he taught them that truth. Last week, we looked at a moment where Jesus was questioned whether or not he paid the temple tax. And Jesus said, do the, do the sons of the kings pay taxes or just the citizens? And the answer is the sons don't pay it. And Jesus said, then I'm exempt. But he told Peter to go fishing. And he said, Peter, you're going to find a coin in a fish's mouth. When you catch this fish, pull it out, take out the coin. And not only are you going to pay my tax, but I'm going to pay yours too. In other words, Jesus was saying to Peter, I got you. I will always provide what you need to do what I ask you to do. So do what I ask you to do. And Peter learned in this process of humility what it means. The glory of God, the struggle of his disciples, and the the fact that being obedient to who Jesus is is going to lead us in the direction we need to go. So today we go into a section of scripture that begins rather awkwardly. Let's begin in verse 33 in Mark chapter 9. 
They came to Capernaum when he was in the house. He asked them, the disciples, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet on the way. They kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Now, let's pause here for just a moment. Most scholars believe this, and, and I agree with them based on the, what I've read, that Mark's account of the gospel probably came firsthand from Peter. And this is an incident where you can see why they believe that. <clears throat> because how would Mark, who wasn't one of the 12 disciples, how would he have known what they were arguing about except that Peter told him, dude, we were busted. We're walking down the road with Jesus, and he's like, what are you arguing about? We're like, nothing. Because they were like, I'm better than you. I'm going to be awesome. You're going to serve me. And this is what they were talking about. And we also know that Peter's mother-in-law lived in Capernaum. And there was a house there that Jesus stayed regularly. Most believe that it was Peter's family's house. So this would have been in Peter's home when this conversation took place. And he told Mark about it. Verse 35. Sitting down. Now remember, teachers sat when they taught in that day. So this is a teaching moment that Jesus is drawing attention to. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me uh, does not welcome me but the one who sent me. I want to pause here for a moment. Children were not treated the same way they're treated today. Our culture, we do everything around our children. We focus our routines, our weekends. We do everything to make sure our kids are in everything we want them to be in. It wasn't the way back then. Children didn't live necessarily. Most children didn't live a full length of life. And so children were not treated the same way. When Jesus took this child and made, gave him attention, he was picking someone who was an outcast or someone who wasn't highly valued. And he said, when you welcome someone who's not highly valued, you welcome me. And when you welcome them, you also welcome the one who sent me. Verse 38, teacher, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me for whoever is not against us is for us. Let's pause. For those of us raising the church, this last verse gives us kind of a stomachache, doesn't it? Is Jesus saying that all a person has to do is mention his name and he's one? He's in? He's a part of the team? And regardless of how he lives or regardless of where he's from or regardless of what he believes, is, if he just says things in Jesus' name, is that, is, does that mean he's a part of this? Well, if you can conclude that if you just take verse 39 and 40 separate of everything else. But we're not allowed to do that. We have to leave conversations within the conversation. So let's remember the background as we go forward. The disciples are arguing about which one of them was the greatest, missing that the greatest was walking in front of them. Church, are you with me? If you're arguing about who's the greatest when you're in the room with Jesus, you're dumb because that fight's already been won. And greatness is not defined by crowds. Greatness is defined by reality, and Jesus is the greatest. He was humble, he was loving, he was kind, he was generous, but he was great. The disciples were arguing amongst themselves, and what Jesus is about to say comes in the context of an argument about who should receive glory, who should be perceived as great. They were saying, well, you know, I, I wonder, I just wonder, I, I can't prove this, but I wonder because... Peter, James, and John were on the Mount of Transfiguration, came down and saw the boy not able to be healed by the other nine, that maybe the three on the mountain were saying to the other nine, <laughs> I rule, you don't. 
I could have healed him. And they're having an argument. And Jesus, knowing human nature, says, what are you guys talking about? Nothing, nothing. They knew exactly what they were talking about. So in light of this argument about what's worth glorying in, my authority, my power, my presence, or Jesus, Jesus begins to teach them. And what I'm going to use are some comparisons this morning. The very first one is this. We versus them. This is a comparison that Christians can do. Disciples of Jesus can do. We compare us, you know, this group, our group, versus that group. Relating to our position in Christ. And Jesus will teach us about place and power. You see, did the 12 think that they were the only ones serving Jesus? And they found out that this man was doing miracles in Jesus' name. And they came to Jesus and they said, he's not one of us. How can he do that? Why are you letting him do that? And Jesus paused and said, he's performing miracles in my name. And we say, yeah, but he's performing miracles. No, no, you're missing it in my name. Jesus said, he's putting the glory of heaven on me. And you're wondering if I should allow that. You see, he wasn't drawing attention to himself. There's a case in the book of Acts where someone was trying to do things in the name of Jesus for his own glory, and he got in big trouble. But in this moment, Jesus said, what is this we versus them? He's doing good works in the name, in my name, in my glory, in my power. He is shining the glory of heaven for the world to see, and you wonder if he's one of us. The answer is, of course he is. You see... It isn't about my serving. It's about who's being served. It isn't about my place. It's always about Jesus' place. Church, acknowledge that you're hearing me this morning. If we make Christianity about our place, it's no longer about Christianity. It's about our religious moment. It's about our religious safety. It's about our religious security. And Jesus wouldn't allow that from his disciples. He was telling them, for he who is not against us is for us. He's one of us. If it's done to the glory of Jesus, then it's it's not really a matter of my place or your place. It's not me versus them. It's us. You see, what we're going to realize over and over and over this morning is one simple truth. It's never just about me. And when our Christianity becomes just about us, we have gotten off track. Let's look at verse 41. Jesus will bring up another point. I tell you the truth. Remember, anytime Jesus said, I tell you the truth, he's trying to get our attention that this is so very important. I tell you the truth. Anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. This is fascinating here because what Jesus is doing is he's dignifying the simplest acts of humanity. He doesn't say any time to his disciples. He doesn't say any time you do this. He said, if you're worried about your place, please understand that there will be people serving me that will serve you. And when they serve you, they're serving me. You're not going to lose your place by serving. Just trust that I have this worked out, that there are disciples all over the globe who we know nothing of who are doing the work of Jesus. Ours versus theirs relating to the needy. That there are rich and there are poor, there are sick and there are healthy, there are the mistreated and those are the taken care of. And Jesus said, you'll always have them. He even said, they'll always be the poor among you. He wasn't saying it was okay. He said, it's the reality of life. 
And yet we know in our hearts that as long as we have extra clothes and extra food and extra money, it shouldn't be that there are some who have no clothes and no food and no money, right? We as a church know, based on the teachings of Jesus, that our surplus sometimes is an idol when that surplus cannot be shared with one who has nothing. So Jesus is challenging them. Ours versus theirs. Your place, your power, your authority. He says, in my name, when they do this, in my name, because you belong. You see, it's not about status. It's about sacrifice. So a couple years ago, I started a routine in my life that I've learned to enjoy. I didn't like it at first. But I get up really early in the morning and I go for a long walk. Uh, and the other morning, I, I, so I walk through my neighborhood, and so let's say I go down this aisleway here. I walk down that direction, and it takes me back the other direction on my way back home. And I was walking down, and it was sometime this, I can't remember which day it was, but we had the big storm come through overnight, and big strong winds. Obviously, there was a tree down in our neighborhood, there were branches down, there were leaves in my yard. But when I walked that direction down this particular road in my subdivision, there were at least five trash cans that had blown off the end of a driveway into the middle of the street. Three of those trash cans were knocked over. Two of the trash cans that were knocked over, their stuff had poured out on the ground. And when I walked by them, I thought this, that's a shame. And I kept walking. And I happened to be listening to a book by C.S. Lewis while I was walking. And there was a section in it I wish I hadn't heard because when I walked back, it was no longer their shame, it was my shame. And when I saw the trash cans, I thought, ugh. You see, my youngest son and I have developed this routine, and it's kind of geeky. I don't say it for any praise. It's just something I thought we should do. And that is when we go into a Walmart parking lot, instead of complaining about the cart that's in the spot that's open that I want to park in, we actually take the cart back in the store because I concluded this, Jesus would do that. He wouldn't wait for the cart boy or cart girl. He would take the cart in because you just take care of people. That's what Christians do. Church, am I wrong? So I'm coming back, and now I'm starting to feel noble. Because I've repented, and I have a chance to prove my worth. And I grabbed the two trash cans to set them back up, because they were in the middle of the road, and it was strewn. And when I reached into the first one, because God's got an incredible sense of humor, I reached into someone's dinner from last night or the week before. And I had stuff on my hand I could not identify, and my whole body shivered. And I set the stupid thing up, hating my life and everyone involved in it, and sat there in the dew on the ground rubbing my hand through the grass because I didn't want to see what was on my hand. And God's in heaven going, <laughs> because here's what I needed to learn. And I, and I may have ruined it by telling you the story, but I tell you the story as an illustration. A, your preacher's an idiot and slow to learn. And B, there's no parade for doing the right thing. When we have to give a parade and an award for doing the right thing, we missed the point. Bob Coldwell was a bus driver in Mount Pleasant, Michigan, an elder of the church that I got to serve at, and he received an award for driving for 40 years without an accident. When Mr. Coldwell got up in front of the group, we were there to honor him. When he got up, he simply t looked at the audience. He said, isn't that what you paid me to do, drive safely? And he sat down, and I thought, I love that man. <laughs> There's no parade for doing the right thing. Church. Jesus said, even when you do the smallest act of humanity, in my name, you're great. If you have to have a parade to feel great, you missed it. Just do the right thing for the right reason. Do it in his name because you're a disciple. Trust. You see, it's not we versus them. It's not ours versus theirs. It's not, well, that's their trash can. They got a problem when they wake up. It was like, 
I was there. Why wouldn't I do that? Because I think Jesus would have turned that trash can up. Now, he's God. He probably would have done it without touching it. But anyway, he would have done it. Verse 42. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. Has he made his point? See, he was holding this little child that could be neglected and thought of as it doesn't provide anything to society. That's how they view children. And he says, but if you take one of these in your freedom of following me, if you make it about your glory and your freedom, and one of these stumbles because of the way you live your life, I want you to understand there's a warning. Verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands go into hell where the fire never goes out. This is a sermon for another day, and it's coming. But we live in a world today that questions whether or not there's a hell. Please understand this. Jesus sure believed in it. And if Jesus believed in demons and hell and eternal punishment, then maybe we ought to, too. Because he's warning us. Verse 45, And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. What in the world is he talking about? Pull these verses out of this conversation, and you can make it say most anything. Leave it in this conversation, and I think we'll see this. He's talking about me versus you. He's talking about relating to those with weak faith, with little faith, with those that are just learning this. You see, he's saying to his disciples, you are arguing about how great you are, and when you're arguing about greatness, you're going to lead others astray because greatness is not defined by the crowd, it's defined by Jesus and the reality of who he is. So the challenge is not how awesome you are. He said, you need to deal with the sin of your pride and the sin of your lust and the sin of whatever it is the same way that you would deal with cancer or with a heart attack. When the doctors tell us we have cancer, we understand there is something inside of us that's eating us alive and we need to do whatever it takes to get that stopped, would we not? You have a heart attack, you just don't go back out to the bacon fest the next week. You realize I have to eat differently and act differently to strengthen my heart so I can survive. Jesus is telling us that our sin is not just an independent issue. We not only need to deal with it because it's eating us alive, but our testimony matters to those. We are not independent when we're disciples of Jesus. It's not about how great we are and how free we are and how powerful we are. It's how committed we are. He's calling us to something different. It's not just my rights versus you. It's what's right with you. Jesus is correcting our prejudice about our relationships are in isolation. That my personal spiritual walk is my issue and not yours. And this is not true. In fact, next week, if you come back next week, we're going to go through a passage where it talks about it's not an independent life being a disciple of Jesus. It's a dependent life in community. See, eternity needs to be a part of our everyday consideration said, you can live in the freedom I'm offering you and choose hell in that freedom. But we must deal with our sin drastically. It's never just about me or my rights. See, what is best for all of us is seldom what is desired by each of us. I want to say that again. What's best for the community of faith is not always what is desired by each of us. I do have freedom in Christ, but that freedom should never be used as a bludgeon to trip somebody else up and cause them to walk away from faith. I have to choose you before I choose me. 
I have to choose us before I choose my own particular passion or freedom or desire. You see, it isn't about my freedom. It's about my compassion. It's about my care. So if you lost me, let me bring you back to speed. We versus them, he's telling us to choose service. Ours versus theirs, choose sacrifice. Mine versus yours, choose selflessness. See, when we choose to serve and to sacrifice and to be selfless, then it makes sense, the fourth one, found in verses 49 through 50. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it make it salty again? Have salt in yourself and be at peace with each other. So when I did my research, I used six different commentaries for this particular part of Jesus' story, and I found something common. All six commentators that I read made this comment. This is one of the most difficult passages to translate. So I'm going to (laughs) try. Go figure. Your preacher is going to tell you what he thinks it is. I think it comes down to this, I versus us, relating to those who are committed. How do we live in community? Because he said that we are to live at peace with each other. We're to be unified. We're to be purposeful. But he uses this image of salt. And there's two things that salt did. Salt preserved and salt purified. Salt preserved, they would pack meat and other uh, things in salt to keep it preserved, and it would purify. Salt has a purifying where it could get rid of bacteria, it could take rid of certain things. And Jesus would always equate this salt back in the Sermon on the Mount to how we live our lives. And he uses it over and over. But if your salt is not doing what it does, it's going to lose its saltiness, and then how is it restored? He's telling us that we are here not to be great, but to introduce people to the greatness of Jesus. Because through the cross and through the suffering Through the salt of the suffering, he preserved and purified us, did he not? And he's telling us that if we live our lives wondering how great we are and how much acclaim we should get and whether we should sit at his right hand or his left hand and we should have all of this pomp and circumstance, the world says, if you want to be someone, make yourself somebody. The world says, if people don't notice how awesome you are, thump your chest and let them see you. Who's the greatest person to ever walk the earth? Jesus. How did he display his greatness? Did he thump his chest? Did he tell everyone how awesome he was? Or did he choose to serve and sacrifice selflessly through suffering? I think that's exactly what he did. Is the world, did did the world reward Jesus and would it reward him today? Absolutely not. I wonder if you'll reason with me for just a few moments this morning. Do you think the disciples ever got mad at Jesus because He could have done it in an easier way. Do you think that the disciples sometimes when the Pharisees started lipping off to Jesus and questioning him and challenging his character, do you think the disciples were anything like me and wanted Jesus just to like have one of their heads fall off (laughs) or say something so precise that they just melted like the witch in the Wizard of Oz? See, there's moments that they want to say to Jesus, be great. And he smiled. He said, I am. I'm humble, I'm I'm gentle, I won't crush a, a bruised reed, I'm kind, I'm pure. I'm gonna show you what greatness is and the world's not gonna recognize it till it's over. Greatness goes into the Garden of Eden and when God tells him no, greatness says okay. 
Greatness goes to the cross and dies a painful, humiliating death. Because greatness says to God, I will serve your purposes, and by serving your purposes, you will serve others. In a world that says you have to be great and known and recognized and promote yourself, Jesus said none of those things work. What works is when you sacrifice and you serve and you live a selfless life because he who wants to be great in my kingdom becomes the least. So I ask this today, do we trust that the method and model of Jesus works? Because if you want to be a disciple of his, it's the only way to live. It's not about who is serving, but who is being served. It's not about our status, it's about our sacrifice. It's not about our freedom, it's about our compassion. It's not about my convenience, it's about the unity of those who are suffering for a kingdom greater than the world can recognize. So that through our suffering, the salt the preserving and purifying nature of a disciple of Jesus will allow others to be preserved and purified through the blood of our King. The world doesn't understand Jesus' greatness, but the church should. So I ask you a question this morning. Are you willing to accept the greatness the way Jesus proposes it? Or will you struggle to make yourself great in the eyes of the world? Because greatness is not defined by the crowds. It's defined by the reality of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.